In chapter 14, we are continuing our series in this three-chapter unit of the letter called 1 Corinthians, chapters 12, 13, and 14. We're now up to chapter 14. I'd like to pray briefly for God's help before Nick reads our passage. Spirit of God, would you now grant us the gift of illumination. Open the eyes of our hearts that we would see, understand, and apply what you wish for us to do so from the infallible, inerrant Word of God. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. First Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. Let us hear God's Word. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Blessed be the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Nick. In 1818, the Arctic explorer named John Ross was summoned to the deck of the ship he was commanding, the Isabella. Ross and his crew were moored in Baffin Bay, south of Greenland, seeking a way through to the Arctic Sea and beyond, what we call the Northwest Passage. The British had been looking for the Northwest Passage for over two centuries, seeking a more direct route to China, but no one had found it yet. So Ross stepped onto the Isabella's deck to scan the horizon. He saw, he said, ice, more ice, and in between, an imposing set of mountain peaks and ordered the crew to turn the ship around. The problem was, there were no mountain peaks in front of him. The next year, in fact, one of Ross's crew, named William Perry, sailed straight through those supposed mountains in what is now called Perry Channel. No one is sure why Ross claimed to see those mountains blocking their path. But the prevailing theory says, quote, he seems to have formed a preconceived idea. A preconceived idea of what the Northwest Passage was going to be like didn't look like he had expected. And so somehow he saw these mountains. It's a story, isn't it, about the danger of our assumptions, the danger of our own preconceived ideas. When it comes to this chapter of Scripture, what preconceived ideas have you formed? I mean, this chapter, as you perhaps just noticed, discusses two more, I think you could call them, controversial spiritual gifts. 
prophecy, it says, and tongues or languages, unlearned languages. And today we'll focus on prophecy, which is the main focus of our passage. When it comes to that gift, friends, what preconceived idea do you have? We all have one. We all do. What preconceived idea have you formed about that gift? You might have a preconceived idea that this gift does not exist today. It has gone extinct. The expiration date on it was over 1,900 years ago. <laughs> we observe it here now as a museum piece, <laughs> an artifact of a bygone era. It is in the archives of church history for us to observe but never experience ourselves. You see a big red light <laughs> when it comes to this gift saying, stop. <laughs> or, or you might have a preconceived idea that says, Maybe for today, but I'm cautious. I am concerned. I mean, if that gift could happen today, it's better if it doesn't. You are aware of the potential abuses of this gift, of which there can be some. And so you want to build walls around this gift to protect people from it. You see this gift and you think of a flashing yellow light saying, caution, caution. Or, maybe your preconceived idea is that this gift is the best thing since sliced bread. This gift is what we need to build this church around. This gift is what we need to make sure happens in every single service. If this gift is not taking place in every single service, we are somehow quenching the spirit. And you see a big green light that says, full steam ahead, no questions asked, no guardrails necessary. Or maybe, like me, your preconceived ideas are somewhere in between those. This morning, we want to avoid the mistake of John Ross. We want to avoid being governed by our preconceived ideas, which we all have. And to, for a moment at least, set aside our assumptions and simply together be addressed by God's word. That's all I want to do. Be addressed by God in and through his word and to hear from God by seeing in this passage both a command and a reason for the command. That's our structure. A command and a reason for that command. Here's the command. The command is this, first of all, that God commands us to eagerly desire the Spirit's gifts, particularly New Testament prophecy. God commands us here in this passage to eagerly, it says, desire the Spirit's gifts, particularly, it highlights this gift I'm calling New Testament prophecy. Look with me at verse 1, please. Verse 1 begins, pursue Love, just like he told us for all of chapter 13, right? Chapter 13 said the motivation for all these spiritual gifts must be others-focused love. Pursue love and, notice, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. So now he's picking up from chapter 12, all he told us in chapter 12. In chapter 12, he said every spiritual gift is a, quote, manifestation of the Spirit. And so he said back in that chapter, 
Every gift is therefore supernatural in that way. Every single gift is supernatural in that sense. And all Christians are gifted. And listen, every gift is needed right here. But then the apostle adds, especially or but rather, Corinthians, that you may prophesy. Now, why does he focus on that gift here? Well, recall that this church had made the gift of tongues, of unlearned languages, the end-all, be-all. You were at a higher spiritual plane if you had a gift of unlearned languages for prayer or praise. Their Sunday service was a cacophony of unintelligible noise, it appears. And so this chapter is really about one thing, intelligibility. Understand each other when you gather like this. And that's why he says here, especially, especially that you may prophesy. Now, before we look at what this gift then is and does, I just want to take in the command with you for a moment. Verse 1 is an imperative, a command from God. Thou shalt not murder... Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. Those are not suggestions. <laughs> Those are not nice ideas. Those are commands from God. Friends, verse 1 is phrased grammatically as a command. Eagerly desire these gifts, especially prophecy. Now, I'm not saying the consequences of breaking God's Ten Commandments are the same as not obeying, verse 1. But to be faithful to Scripture, let us recognize what is before us. God is commanding. We eagerly desire these things. Particularly here, I like this one gift for the gathered congregation. You see, God is, God is getting at our hearts first, isn't He? He's getting at our hearts. Will we eagerly desire these gifts? Even this one gift for the gathered church in our hearts. Andrew Wilson, in his outstanding book that I would highly recommend, Spirit and Sacrament, he reflects on this idea of eagerly desire and says it's, it's not the same as saying, you know, you're open. He says eagerly desire is, it's really not the same as I'm open maybe. He says, I, I eagerly desire time with my wife. But if I said I was open to time with my wife, she would hear that differently. And she might be open to me sleeping on the couch. <laughs> you get his point. God expects us here to be more than open to these gifts, don't you think? So let's make some application. If you would say, I, tab, I refuse to eagerly desire these gifts, including this gift, ask yourself why. Ask yourself why. It could be, I think, theologically, these gifts have gone extinct with the dinosaurs. Okay. Set aside the preconceived idea for a little bit, if you would, but okay, I get that. But 
you might say, look, I won't eagerly desire because I just think it's too dangerous. And let me acknowledge, people have misused this gift at times. Marshall was telling us in one, in one of our elders' meetings of a past church experience where people were being manipulated by the use of this gift. And friends, that's wrong and will not be tolerated here. We don't manipulate anybody with this gift. If your past experience somewhere else has been a misuse of this gift, I am sorry to hear that. But I want to appeal to you as well. Please don't let the past misuse negate proper use. Don't let the misuse of this gift negate the proper use of this gift. We need biblical guardrails, as we shall see, while, I would submit to you, taking the command seriously to eagerly desire in your hearts. Or, or maybe you just don't eagerly desire such gifts because you just don't think they're very useful. You don't think they're very helpful. This prophecy thing, it's just not useful to us. Christmas is coming. I know that because I got a green and red Starbucks cup this week. Christmas is coming, and I find the gift-giving part of Christmas challenging because I want to give to my relatives a useful gift. I mean, we all know what it's like to get a gift that you know you're not going to use. When you open it, and you say, oh, a nice, ugly tie that I'll never wear. Thank you. Oh, disco classics of the 70s. Oh, the best of the Bee Gees. Thank you. For many, New Testament prophecy is like that. You're not theologically opposed. You just don't see the point. It was in vogue in the charismatic movement, but it's outlived its usefulness. It's an ugly tie. It's 70s disco music. I hope you'll let God speak to you. I know you will and see how useful this gift can be so that you eagerly desire it in your heart. So that's the command. Let's see the reason. Why the command? Well, secondly, secondly, God addresses us that he might edify us through New Testament prophecy. Here's the reason. God addresses us that he might edify us, that he might build us up through this gift I'm calling New Testament prophecy. Now, there are two pairs of verses coming next here. Let's see the first pair, verse 2. Verse 2, for one who speaks in a tongue, an unlearned language, speaks not to men but to God. Notice that, to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Other side of the pair, verse 3. On the other hand, on the other hand, the one who prophesies, notice, speaks to people, speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. So first I want you to just catch the parallel. The gift of unlearned languages, he says, you're speaking to God. It's a form of prayer 
or praise in this passage. But this other gift, this gift of prophecy, he says, you're speaking to people. You're addressing people. And the implication is, I think, God is, in a way, speaking through people to other people. One sense, we speak to God. In another sense, God is speaking or addressing us. And I think you see that as you go on in this passage in verses like verse 30. Notice verses 29 and 30. Paul goes on and he says, Let two or three prophets speak, let the others weigh what is said. And if a, if a revelation is made, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. Now, it's really interesting what he calls this experience that these people he calls prophets have here. He says some revelation is made to them. God making something known to them. God addressing his people in some manner through this gift. But before you get concerned that, I, that you think I'm saying we should add new revelation to our Bibles... Pay attention to verse 29. Let two or three of these individuals speak and let the others do what? Let the others weigh what is said. Now, you would never say to Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, I'm going to weigh that. Thank you. You would never say to one of the Old Testament prophets, I will I will now weigh what you're saying to me and I will tell you if I think it's true. You would not do that. You don't weigh those prophets, you obey those prophets. The same for New Testament apostles. Old Testament prophet equivalent is New Testament apostle. But the New Testament gift of prophecy must be weighed. It must be evaluated. It must be weighed by the normative revelation of Scripture, the norming revelation of God's Word. 1 Thessalonians 5, the same idea. 1 Thessalonians 5, we read, Do not despise prophecies. He's getting at our hearts again, isn't he? Don't despise prophecies, the, the apostle says, but test everything. Test it, test it. And hold fast to what is good. The story is told of a man visiting the Louvre in Paris. And he beholds the Mona Lisa. And after several minutes of observing the Mona Lisa, he says, I don't like it. The guard next to the Mona Lisa responds, Sir, these paintings are no longer being judged. The viewers are. It's kind of like that. Friends, the scriptures are not to be judged, but our New Testament prophecies, this gift of New Testament prophecy, certainly is. It is weighed, tested by holy scripture. Those are the guardrails God gives to us here because, because as chapter 13, verse 9 put it, we prophesy in part. In part. In other words, well, weigh it. There could be, there could be a God part, but you know what? There's a human part too, because it's in part. 
That's why I like Wayne Grudem's definition of this gift where he says it is speaking merely human words to report something God brings to mind. Speaking merely human words to report something God brings to mind. Mere human words. It's in part. It's got to be weighed with Scripture. It's got to be tested by Scripture. It's in part. But you might be reporting something that God has brought to mind. Maybe a thought impressed on you that was just right, unrelated to your train of thought at that moment. Or maybe something impressed on you with an immediacy and an ongoing sense, a vividness and, and persistence that you sense might be from the Spirit. You see, in this gift, God is addressing us when used properly that He might edify us, that He might build us up. Back to verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people, notice, for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Here's, here's the mission statement for this gift. Upbuilding, encouragement, consolation. Notice its explicit mission statement is not somehow predicting the future. Now, I am not here to tell you what God can and cannot do. I find that not to be very street smart. But here is the explicit mission statement for this gift. It's not predictive. It is about upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. That's its usefulness as God goes on to elaborate in the next pair of verses. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue and unlearned language builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church, the gathered church. The church is edified as they're gathered. Not that, not that other gifts don't do that. I hope and trust the gift of teaching edifies the gathered congregation. I believe, in fact, that preaching of God's Word is a central way God edifies us. I believe preaching is a vital and central way God builds up His people. That's why it's so important that we gather. That's one reason at least. But prophecy here also can edify the gathered congregation in a way that unintelligible languages never could. That's his point. That's why he says in verse 5, now I want you all to speak in tongues, which is a pretty big endorsement, by the way. Even more, though, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. And it's confusing here that he says greater, but we know from what we've already seen in chapter 12, he does not mean this gift somehow exalts an individual. All of chapter 12 spoke against that idea. We know he doesn't mean that. What he seems to mean is, again, prophecy edifies the gathered congregation in a way that unintelligible languages cannot, and so it's greater in that sense. 
So, I hope you're tracking with me. That's why God commands us to eagerly desire because through this gift, when used properly, God addresses us that he might edify us. Now, let me give you a few examples. I don't always know what God is doing, of course. I rarely do, but here are a few examples that I'm aware of. This one goes back a ways. I was in Chicago and had a guest speaker come. I didn't know him, but he came highly recommended to me. His name is David. He was a pastor and a part-time professor at Trinity University. Later on, David told me that in his preparation to teach his business ethics course, in preparing to teach business ethics, he had been meditating on Romans chapter 8 and the foundational idea that, all God, that God is good and all he does is good. That God is good and all that he does is good. He's studying Romans 8. He's meditating on this idea. God is good. All that he does is good for his class. Doesn't know us. Shows up to this service. And my wife is spontaneously impressed to read Romans chapter 8 from the microphone. And then she says, I think the Lord might remind us that he is good and all he does is good. Now, I trust all of us were edified. I couldn't ask everybody, but I trust we were all edified by being reminded that God is good. But David said, for him, it was like such an encouragement that God knows right where I am right now. A building, encouragement, consolation. Happens right here as well. A member here recently shared a time when Lindsay Helmers read from James chapter 1 during our service. She read about every good and perfect gift being from above. And then she said, I just feel impressed to apply that to people who right now feel overwhelmed by their sin and they want to give up. Now, I'm sure that was edifying for everybody here because we can all relate to that. But this member told me recently, he said, that was so for me in that moment because I was struggling with my sin and I wanted to give up. And I realized when Lindsay read that and shared that, that God sees me, that God has not left me, and God is my strength in this struggle with sin. Upbuilding. Encouragement. Consolation. This happens, I think, in private settings, too. It can happen in your small group. I, I had experience like this recently where someone asked me if they could pray for me. And I try not to turn that down. So I said, sure pray for me and he's praying for me enthusiastically which I appreciated and then he stopped and he said you know I feel like you have done something recently that the Lord is pleased about well what I, and I hope so I don't know <laughs> and actually what came into my mind very quickly was the fact that my my in-laws had just moved in with us so yeah I gave myself a little pat on the back 
It was the next day or two when I was reading 1 Timothy chapter 5 in my devotional time and noticed a phrase I had never paid attention to. It says, making some return to your parents is, quote, pleasing in the sight of God. Just like this guy shared with me. Now, 1 Timothy 5 verse 4 is God's word. But that subjective impression helped me apply God's word. I think helped me feel God's pleasure a bit personally too. It's upbuilding, it's encouragement, it's consolation. Similarly, Joshua Morgan told me how recently he was praying for somebody and a particular verse and way to pray came to mind suddenly for him. So he shared that verse and prayed for that reason. And I'm sure that person was edified. I think that's on the spectrum, the spectrum of what this gift can look like. God edifies the believing in some fashion. In fact, interestingly, we're told here he can also convict the unbelieving. Look down to verse 24. Verse 24 we find, God says, If all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to, give, to, called to account by all. Notice, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare, God is really among you. We want that to happen too, don't we? Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers from the 19th century, wrote the following in his autobiography. He said, while preaching to a large crowd, while preaching, I pointed to a man in the midst of the crowd and said, there is a man sitting there who is a shoemaker who keeps his shop open on Sundays. Last Sabbath morning, he took nine pence and there was four pence profit out of it. His soul is sold to Satan for four pence. Now, I don't share the same Sabbath view that Mr. Spurgeon does, by the way. Pretty strict Sabbatarian view. I wouldn't phrase it the same way in case you're wondering. But that's not the point. He goes on. A city missionary, when going his rounds later, met this man, and seeing he was reading one of, my one of my sermons, asked him, Do you know Mr. Spurgeon? Yes, replied the man. I have every reason to know him. <laughs> Under his preaching, by God's grace, I have become a new creature in Christ Jesus. He explained. I went to the music hall. And Mr. Spurgeon looked at me as if he knew me and in his sermon pointed to me and told the congregation I was a shoemaker and I kept my shop open on Sundays and I did serve. I should not have minded that. But he also said I took nine pence the Sunday before and there were four pence profit out of it. I did take nine pence that day and four pence was just the profit. But how he should know that I could not tell. And then it struck me. It was God who had spoken to my soul through him. It struck me. It was God who had spoken to my soul through him. At first, I was afraid to go again to hear him, lest he should tell people more about me. <laughs> this guy is street smart. But afterwards, I went, and the Lord met me and saved my soul. 
And then Spurgeon adds, I could tell as many as a dozen similar cases. Now look, I've never experienced that. But it does tell us that God knows the secrets of every heart here. And friend, if you are yet a believer in Jesus Christ, he knows the secrets of your heart. And I think that should encourage you and urge you to flee to Christ by faith. You and I both need to flee to Jesus to have our sins taken away. For Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose to do so. Flee to Jesus by faith. Be covered in his righteousness, his obedience, and hope in his resurrected life to give you new life in Christ. I urge you to flee to him. God knows you and knows me and all of us here. God edifies the believing, can even convict the unbelieving. That's why he commands us to eagerly desire the Spirit's gifts, all of them, all of them. But for the gathered church, he says, highlight this gift. See, like, like that mountain range that John Ross thought he saw but wasn't there, there is a danger of preconceived ideas. If your preconceived idea has been this gift has gone the way of the dinosaurs, it's just a museum piece, I hope you'll at least consider if this is a command of God even possibly for today, it must be taken seriously. It must be taken seriously. If that's a possibility that God is commanding this for us today, I think at least the red light should go to yellow. <laughs> and I would encourage you to read the book Showing the Spirit by esteemed New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, or pick up Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology and read the pertinent chapters. He is an esteemed systematic theologian. And consider for yourself. But maybe your preconceived idea has been, I am cautious, I am concerned, big yellow light. I, I would like to just, in love, just challenge you a little bit more. I think you have to acknowledge that God has a very positive view of this gift. Right? It's not an ugly tie or the best of the Bee Gees. He has a very positive view. So friends, let us endeavor to obey this command. Let us earnestly desire by earnestly praying for it. Let us earnestly desire it by earnestly praying God would give us all the gifts of the Spirit, including this one. And let us, let us anticipate God's answers to our prayers. I think there would be a good takeaway from this passage that you come on Sunday mornings and to your small groups with a, a renewed anticipation of how God wants to edify you. Anticipate how the Spirit will use the, the lyrics of the songs we sing, as I think he was doing today, as Joshua mentioned, to build us up. Anticipate how God wants to use the preaching of his word in a foremost way to build us up. Anticipate how the Spirit wants to use the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper to build you up. And anticipate how the Lord may use even this gift of New Testament prophecy to build you up and come looking for how God may want to edify you in all those ways and maybe how God may want to use you to edify other people. Anticipate. Come, come to your home group with a similar anticipation. I think I would 
I would begin to apply this, especially at, at home group. Let me give you a visual image of anticipation. I think it looks like you're leaning forward. You're leaning forward so that it doesn't take the spirit's you know, sledgehammer to move you forward and try to edify the people. It just takes a, a gentle nudge of the spirit. And you're willing to, to step out and share something, a, a verse that maybe is on your heart that would edify someone you're praying for in your small group. That's where I would start. This gift can be wonderfully helpful in times of ministry and prayer right there in your small group to edify, comfort, console, and encourage. But lastly, if your preconceived idea has been, this gift is the end-all, be-all. We need to build this church around this gift. We need this gift operative in every single service or we are quenching the Holy Spirit. I would like to kindly disagree because God's word disagrees. Consider where the apostle goes immediately next after chapter 14. He goes, of course, to chapter 15, and he tells us in chapter 15, verse 3, I delivered to you as of what? First importance, greatest priority, what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Holy Scriptures. Friends, that is what we build our lives on. That is what we build our church on. That is what we build every service around Jesus Christ and Him crucified, risen, and reigning right now. That is the message. That is the truth of first importance. I like to say that gospel, that good news, is the flag around which we rally. It's our common denominator. It's the glue that holds us together in Christ, Jesus Christ, and Him crucified, risen, and reigning. That is the matter of first importance, and it will always, always be, as long as I have breath, as long as your elders have breath, that will always be the matter of first importance. Can I get an amen on that? Thank you so much. Not asking too much, right? We celebrate that gospel. We apply that gospel. And we thank God for that gospel. And that's why we're going to close our service celebrating that gospel through the Lord's Supper. Would the service please prepare to serve?